0: Uh, If you've joined us today uh, uh, for the first time, we're at the last of our vision series, and um, I'm going to speak on the last point of our vision, which is imagine a church that inspired creatives. You could say that the role of the creative or the artist is to engage the culture, it's to influence. And in this respect, I think that being a Christian is essentially a creative pursuit. And we can be a church that inspires creatives by being a church that engages our culture. The question I want to ask for us this morning, though, is this. How actually can we engage our culture? Most of us are pretty confused about this question, I think, these days perhaps even sad, when we think about this question, because we are essentially scared to speak up, most of us. We're scared to speak up um, in the everyday context of our friends, let alone in the public sphere. Even some of us believe the strange idea that religion is meant to be private. Look at the recent furor over the Margaret Court comments about same-sex marriage. I can understand why watching that all unfold, the 74-year-old lady making these comments and then the explosion around that, the outrage, I can understand why you might want to stay silent. Or, you know, I think about the 200 or so Christians who went up to Voices for Justice last year to Canberra to influence the politicians, and we all go around and meeting politicians of every um, stripe, And they all nod mostly in agreement, not completely. And you feel good at the end of that 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 the Christians are having a voice in the public sphere. And then in the very next budget, the government cuts the aid budget even more, which was the thing that we were talking to them about not doing. So you feel like, does anyone even care what Christians think anymore? We believe Jesus is Lord... But it seems like in a post-Christian society like Australia, like Melbourne, like the Inner North, it seems impossible to bring about any kind of change. MacRindle Research, which is uh, an Australian research organisation, you might have seen them in the media. Also, the guy, Mark, who runs it, happens to have been an ex-Baptist pastor, so he, he always puts a bit of extra effort in for the research around the church. They recently published statistics... Uh, on um, the top, first of all, the top three reasons why the wider community said they didn't engage with the church were number one, perceptions about the church, two, the relevance of the church, and three, their own personal business. Then they also did the top three reasons the Christians said they didn't, in, this is in Australia, the Christians in Australia said they didn't engage with the wider community. What's the top reason? Business fear, and lack of confidence. So how do we engage the culture? If that's us, which I suspect it is. If we look at Jesus and what relating to the culture was like for him and the people of God in his day, we see that actually things weren't that different. The Jews were angry at the power of Rome and its paganism. Faithful people were struggling to know how to live out their, um, their, their faith in a culture where their values and their morals were not welcome. And many of those groups responded similarly to the way Christians do today. The Sadducees may deal with, deals with the Romans because they cared about the power and the influence that they had. They basically sold out to the empire. The Pharisees, they were separatists. They became like the religious police who made sure everyone kind of... Um, had the right morals, and they they lamented the decline of the morality in that culture. They were trying to religiously push people into returning to the glory days of influence. The Essenes, they were so unhappy with the culture that they ran off into the desert and uh, they wanted to escape the pagan world and they waited there for the Son of Man to come. The Zealots, they were pragmatic, uh, seeking and they were violent and they seek, seek to seize control by every means necessary, including using violence and terrorism. So, Jesus worked amongst all these religious groups and frustrated them all. They were waiting for him to act like one of them. But his message and his approach to living amongst a culture was completely unique. And he created a vision of what we're going to use this phrase today, Um, he created a vision of becoming a creative minority he didn't use that phrase but I'll explain what that means that's what the purpose of this talk is I heard this phrase creative minority um, from uh, an Australian pastor who uh, ministers in New York who you might remember those of you who were with us uh, right from the start of the church plan John Tyson who came to our barbecue and he talked to us about church planning back in 2013 He, he uses this phrase but he didn't come up with it he stole it from uh, the UK Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who wrote an article in the uh, website, the Christian website called First Things. And he used the expression to talk about the Jewish community and how it it had survived and even flourished and helped the world through what he called redemptive participation. And, And Rabbi Sachs talked about living in the tension of faithfulness and fruitfulness. He says this, this is Rabbi Sachs, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is a demanding and risk-laden choice, he says. And John Tyson extends Rabbi Sachs's idea to talk about how Christians can be a creative minority in the world. And he says this, A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practising the ways of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. But there are others who talk about this. Karl Barth, the theologian, I love quoting He doesn't use the expression, but he describes it. And he says, The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically dissimilar to the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way that is full of promise. That's the key. Radical dissimilarity and hopeful promise. That's what we're here for. And if we look back on 2,000 years of church history, we will see that the church has advanced... And it has borne fruit in situations far more challenging than the one we find ourselves in in Australia today. And as we learned on the camp, we looked at some parables, the kingdom of God doesn't depend on our own performance. Rather, God invites us to follow in the ways of Jesus in his great redemptive work in our time. So what we're going to look at should not lead us to feel sad. We just have to face reality that practicing, being a practising Christian puts you in a minority group in Australia. Less than, I think it's 10% of the, of the population are actually practising Christians. And yet we need to find a positive way forward. Um, and, I, and I love this expression, being a creative minority. So here are six defining marks of the creative minority and much, of, we, much of, this, of these ideas I've got from John Tyson and also Heather Grizzle, who's this consultant for a not-for-profit and a political advisor in America, but you don't need to know that. Anyway, first of all, they, they talk about this idea. Um, to be a creative minority means, means to embrace covenant. means to embrace authentic community over loose networks. Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, Love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So being a creative minority means to promote authentic community over individualism. Individualism is hardwired into our culture. Even into church culture, we talk about my personal salvation We talk about my choice to become a Christian. And we sing, I will sing of your love forever. I will do it. I will do it. I will. And personal faith is important, of course. But Jesus talked about being other person-centred and community-focused. Think of the Sermon on the Mount and how anti-individualistic it is. You cannot live out the radical discipleship practices of the Sermon on the Mount like... Uh, you know, giving away all your possessions and selling and, and, and selling all your possessions, giving all the money to the poor and and uh, you know non-violent um, activism and uh, uh, loving your enemies. You can't do that on your own without b- burning out. Uh, one theologian, Douglas Jones, writes: One person cannot live the life of the Trinity. The church is the Trinity on earth. And all the gifts and body parts are crucial to sustaining the way of the cross. You might have heard of the Clapham sect. That's who William Wilberforce came came from. They were this tight network of Christians in England in the um, 19th century. And and they worked with William Wilberforce to end slavery in England. And they had shared moral and religious values. And they actually lived close to each other. They committed to each other. They even apparently went on holidays together. That's pretty full on. <laughs> and they were committed around the same values of social activism and especially around the ending of so, slavery. They worked to reform the prison system. And so many things um, happened because of the Clapham sect. They produced all these foundations, these societies, like the British Foreign uh, Bible Society, the Church Missionary Society, the Anti-Slavery Society... The Abolition Society, the Proclamation Society, the Sunday School Society, the Bettering Society, and the Small Debt Society. That's what we need today. We need to start that again. This was the great age of societies, as one famous church historian has said. Um, And actually, the things that the Clapham sect did actually defined English culture in that period. It really became the spirit of the age. They were a great example of a creative minority who were in authentic covenantal community. The dominant culture at the time thought the exact opposite of what they were teaching. The English economy depended on slavery and yet they were saying let's abolish it. And they worked faithfully to bring moral reform based on their biblical convictions. We can't engage our culture as a loose network of individuals because as soon as we experience hardship or conflict we give up. We'll abandon each other. But a tight community who is accountable to each other and loyal will remain united despite the disagreements we might face. Jesus' command to love is not just a Christian cliché. Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 13, nothing else matters apart from love. We have to stop working out how to influence the culture and start working on how to love each other radically and loving the people around us self-sacrificially because ministry without love is just noise. Well, the second thing we need is a narrative. We need a compelling narrative alternative story if we're going to be a creative minority. The prominent is a script script writing teacher, who is well-known, called Bobette Buster. And she says, narrative is our culture's currency. He who tells the best story wins. And the tragedy is for many Christians is we don't even know our own story. Uh, Once we lived in a world where it was almost impossible to, uh, to not believe it was impossible to doubt once upon a time in our history. But now it's almost impossible to be certain, isn't it? So we hold our story loosely. We know bits of it. If we do convey the gospel story, we can remember like a, like it was a distant memory. We might talk about sin and we might talk about Jesus' forgiveness and maybe heaven or something. You might remember your Sunday school stories. But the full gospel story is is important. It's crucial. We need it to survive, to be able to have an impact on our culture. We need to remember that it begins with a God who um, creates the universe and loves it um, and sees it as perfect and creates us in in his image. That we were tempted by Satan and that we sinned, and that brought um, brokenness into the universe, and a separation from our loving God. We need to remember the part of the story where God sends Jesus, who died and rose to save us. We need to remember the last part of the story, which is the, the one that we often forget: that um, that we now God calls us into this privilege of joining with Him. Uh, in the redemption of our world, participating in the renewal of all things here on earth. So if you only just have parts of this story, you're living out a a fragmented narrative, an incomplete form of Christianity. If your form of Christianity is just that you're a sinner and you're saved and you get to go to heaven, you'll view the world very differently from a person who remembers that God created the world and saw that it was very good. You'll, you'll, you'll live very different to a Christian who knows that God's plan is to, to, to renew the, the heavens and the earth. What you'll see is that every person has dignity and every job matters because it's part of God's creation. A creative minority has an alternative vision of faith and, and, and work as well that encompasses every part of our life. It's actually a subversive story that says that God loves his creation. And that we are called as God's heirs into this work of redeeming it. So a creative minority, it's it's driven and it's framed by a compelling counter-narrative in the full Bible story of God's loving relationship with his people. And so from there we can understand economics and education and sexuality and many other areas of our life. How we understand the way God relates... To humanity and what his desires are, it changes everything. The great theologian N.T. Wright says an essential part of the theological and missional tasks today is to, del- is to tell the story as clearly as possible and to allow it to subvert other ways of telling the story of the world. The third thing we need is ethics, a distinct moral vision. The Scottish moral philosopher Alastair McIntyre says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? I often hear people, Christians and other, spouting strong ethical opinions about this or that. And I think to myself, how have you even come up with that view? Where did you get that from? Is it just a gut feeling? Is it what you've been taught at uni? Is it some fuzzy version of virtue ethics about being a good person? Rarely do I get the impression that people have a system for forming their ethics. And you know, when I listen to someone like Peter Singer, right, uh, I find him refreshing. Now, I don't agree with him. Many of the things that he says, he's what you call a secular utilitarian ethicist. But I respect him because at least I know he's... Got a process, a method of forming his ethical views, and he sticks to it. He's thought about it, even though I find some of it abhorrent. Christians, we make a huge mistake when we think all we have to do is believe in the gospel, but we detach that from our, the way we live our life. And we can be just as much uh, in trouble. Uh, you know, just like everyone else, forming random ethical views that are not actually based on anything, apart from the vibe or marbo or whatever. You know, in a creative minority, our lives are formed out of the way of Jesus. We live out the Sermon on the Mount. The Gospel, it determines our ethics. The Christian minority is not politically left. If you look at the, the views of the Greens... Some things might line up, but many things don't line up with the gospel. The creative minority is not centre-left. The Labor Party might have some policies that might line up with the gospel, but many don't. A creative minority is not centre-right. The Liberal Party might have some policies that might line up with the gospel, but many other policies (laughs) actually fly in the face of the gospel. And the creative minority is not right-wing. It does not stand in solidarity with one nation. The only politics that a, a Christian can really have in the creative minority is gospel politics. These are the policies of Jesus. And we have to embrace that. In all cultures, sex, money and power are what you could call the idolatrous trinity that defines a culture's ethical vision. These are the good gifts from God, but when they're distorted, the creative minority has to offer an alternative ethics, an alternative ethical vision. Uh, Tim Keller's got a very famous quote that's probably used too many times in sermons, but I'll, I'll use it. The early church, he says this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they have practically, and they gave practically everybody their money. John Tyson says, rephrases that beautifully. He says. We need to be a people marked by financial promiscuity and extramarital sexual stinginess. I like that. If we did this, we would be set apart from the culture around us and we would be answering the deeper longings of our generation who crave intimacy and have used sex to fulfil a need. Sex separate from marriage might feel good in the moment, but it doesn't fulfil the longing that we have the space in our hearts. One Catholic theologian, Ronald uh, Rollheiser, describes, he talks about the sublime, sublime intimacy of sex. In, and he talks about it like this. Sex cannot deliver the goods. It alleviates our loneliness too little, especially our moral loneliness. Sex that isn't sublime doesn't bring us a soulmate. What it brings is a fix a hit, a drug, that helps us through a lonely night or a lonely season. Sex cannot be sublime without first living a real chastity. The person who sleeps with somebody he or she hardly knows, has no real commitment to, and has never lived in a chaste tension with, will not have a sublime or profound experience. And this is the quote of the century. Short-circuiting chastity is like trying to write a masterpiece overnight. Good luck, but it isn't going to happen. Great love, like great art, takes great effort and sustained commitment and lots of time. So in the world of sexual promiscuity, Christians need to present a gospel ethic that's an alternative, that brings hope into the world. Similarly, in the world of power, we need to embrace an alternate vision of humility. The world will take notice. And we must be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for us the reason of the hope that we have. We need to display hearts that are Christ-like. And don't get me wrong, I'm not just saying Christians need to be morally um, do-gooders, moral do-gooders. But it's about creating disciples of Jesus in a radical community who are financially generous, remarkably faithful to God and humble to those around them. Leslie Newbigin says, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. So to be a creative minority, we've looked at authentic covenantal community, a compelling alternative story of the gospel and a distinct moral vision. And then we need to have, fourthly, practices, counter-formative action. By living in the world, you are being shaped every day. You're being discipled by the world around you. And it's hard to be, see it how it happens. It happens through the media, which trivialises events that are important. It happens through marketing that makes false promises to sell us products that we don't need. It happens through economics that tell, tells us that more and more is better and better. It tells us, we're told through sexuality, which, uh, you know, contemporary sexuality, which is all about um, sex being fine, you know, just purely physical, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Uh, We're told through that religion is all religions are equal and valid. And to claim that one is true and others is not, is cultural treason. And we're told through the idolatry of self. It's gone so far that we're able to speak of my truth. As if their perspective somehow creates objective reality. So we need to use the gospel to be able to identify all these voices and these messages that are coming in our life and also our actions. We need to be able to spot the the way we're living and then and then change and bring change. We need to be able to identify what are the habits that we have that are sinful. The Christian writer Richard Lovelace says that inordinate affection, loving ourselves or others or things more than God, always bends us out of shape. We actually need to form counter-formative practices that shape our culture rather than have our culture shape us into a distortion of what God wants. This is not just about learning more Christian information, but about developing right practices. And it's about doing that In community. You've got a finite amount of time in the week. What do you devote it to? What is your liturgy in the week? What does it look like? If I'm looking at at your life, at my own life, do I see the worship of work? Do I see the worship of self? Do I see the worship of, of leisure? Do I see the worship of family? Or do I see the worship of Jesus? Why not get together with your Christian brothers and sisters in your creative minority, your covenantal Christian community, living by the compelling narrative of the gospel, with a distinct moral vision to do some counter-formative practices. Listen to this example of a counter-formative practice. Um, This is from a book called Futureville. On May 28, 1992, the principal cellist of the Sarajevo Sarajevo opera, dressed in his formal black tails and sat down on a fire-scorched chair in a bomb crater to play Albanoni's Adagio in G minor. And the site was outside a bakery in Somalyevic's neighbourhood where 22 people waiting in line for bread had been killed the previous day. During the siege of Sarajevo from 1992 to 1995, more than 10 1,000 people were killed. The citizens lived in constant fear of shelling and snipers while struggling each day to find food and water. Smoljivik lived near one of the few working bakeries where a long line of people had gathered when a shell exploded. He rushed to the scene and was overcome with grief at the carnage. For the next 22 days, one for each victim of the bombing, he decided to challenge the ugliness of war with his only weapon beauty and he became known as the cellist of sarajevo he not only performed outside the bakery but continued to unleash the beauty of his music in graveyards at funerals in the rubble of buildings and in the sniper infested streets he said i never stopped playing music throughout the siege my weapon was the cello although completely vulnerable he was never shot it was as if The beauty of his presence repelled the violence of war. His music created an oasis amid the horror. It offered hope to the people of Sarajevo and a vision of beauty to the soldiers who were destroying the city. And a reporter asked him if he was crazy for playing in a war zone. And he replied, why do you not ask if they are crazy for shelling Sarajevo? A creative minority does not accept the status but through tangible actions, it steps into the brokenness of the world and begins to release a kind of prophetic imagination about what life can be like with Jesus. The fifth thing we need is an authority if we're going to be a creative minority, a humble alternative allegiance. A shift that has occurred in Western culture is that we no longer know where our authority lies. Previous generations trusted in institutions and people in power, but now, for very good reason, they've lost that trust. The people of God lived during Old Testament times as exiles in the New Testament times. They lived under the Roman Empire. I ask the question, who do we live under now, though? Who is the authority over us trying to invade over God. If we believe that Jesus is Lord, then in a culture like ours, that lordship is going to be tested. And that brings us to the readings, the Daniel 5 and 9 readings. If we look at the story of Daniel, we see the courage he demonstrated in in the face of exile. In Daniel's day, Hebrew boys, um, because they were in exile in Babylon, the Hebrew boys were taken away at the age of 13 from their family and their community. And their, um, their capture by the Babylonians meant that their God was effectu- effectively captured as well. And Daniel and his friends were made to be stewards in the king's house. And despite all of this, their hearts remained submitted to the Lord. They had an alternative authority. They were tested by the king, but they were given favour. They ate a different diet and did not bow down to the golden image in devotion. We know about the story of the lion's den. But what about this scene that we've had read out from Daniel 5, that I read out, um, about, that shows us Daniel's commitment to speaking the truth and yet also keeping his integrity. He remained under the lordship of God, the God of Israel. We see King Belshazzar hosting a party and profaning the holy instruments used in the temple of God. And a a hand appears on the wall. And the king is terrified. And he calls for Daniel to interpret the writing. And Daniel could have softened the message to make the king feel better. He could have accepted all the rewards that were offered. The purple robe and the gold chain. And the position as the third highest, most powerful person in the kingdom. But he does what he believes is right under his God. And speaks the truth. He didn't want the worldly power and wealth. A creative minority responds externally with an alternative allegiance. The passage we had from Daniel 9 shows us a glimpse into Daniel's life about 50 years later. And it's remarkable because he's still ordering his life around um, the evening sacrifice, which is, so he's he's ordering his life around the, the Jewish practices. He had not seen a sacrifice in the temple. For decades, in fact, the temple had been destroyed. But his spiritual life was not determined by the Babylonian calendar, but by the rhythms God had given the Israelites. Our hearts are called to respond to God, not to the world. And this leads us to live a humble life, despite what environments we find ourselves in. The Apostle Peter says it like this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good, good deeds uh, glorify God on the day he visits us. Rather than speaking truth to power, I think many of us have become seduced by it. We need to let go of our need to be liked and to be accepted by the people around us and be part of the creative minority who has one allegiance, and that is to Jesus. And regardless of the consequences, we need to be loyal to him and have confidence about him as our ultimate authority. So a creative minority has authentic covenantal community, a compelling alternative story of the gospel, a distinct moral vision, counterformative practices and the alternative authority of God. And lastly, there's the participation of exerting redemptive influence. You don't engage with the people around you Because you are too busy and too scared to be vulnerable. That is the problem. But what if you learn to influence the people around you by living a radical Christian life? When the creative minority starts living in a redemptive way in the culture, we change the culture. Philip Yancey tells an amazing story of the life of Ernest Gordon, who was a British officer in the Japanese prisoner of war camp. The prisoners in this camp were rebuilding a railroad and thousands of people had died in the heat and the the punishment and the starvation. And as a result, within the the prisoners, there was a lot of internal fighting and, and grabbing for any scraps of food or water that they could get. And then one day, something changed dramatically in the camp. A shovel went missing. And a Japanese guard discovered that a shovel was missing and got really angry, and started shouting that if the shovel wasn't returned, he would start shooting the soldiers, the prisoners. And he lifted his rifle to shoot, and he said, bring it back, bring it back, I will shoot, I will shoot. And then this one man stood up and said, I took the shovel, I did it. So the guard then beat him to death in front of the whole group. And then later that evening, it was discovered that actually the shovel had not gone missing, but there was a miscount. And that this man had stepped forward in an act of selfless love. And this act, according to Philip Phil apparently had transformed the whole prison camp. One of the prisoners read out Jesus' words, and he said, "'No greater love has any man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends.' And the kingdom of God started to grow." in this camp. The prisoners pulled their gifts and talents to form this kind of university in the jungle. They taught philosophy and ethics and economics and languages. They even built a church in the prisoner of war camp. Started producing artworks. There were even instrument instrument makers who, um, were, who started making instruments and they performed some Mozart apparently. And when the war was over, the prisoners were actually kind to their captors and Yancy concludes this story by saying, in the soil of this violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root it lives in hope of a day of liberation in the meantime it aligns itself with another world not just spreading rumours, but planting settlements in advance of that coming rain now you're not in a prisoner of war camp now but you can make a difference where you are there's a writer in Christianity today, Andy Crouch, who, who was speaking to some young Christians in a church and he, he summarised, sort of was being blunt, and he said, you want to be a radical Christian, it's really easy. Uh, just give away 10% of your money and stop watching TV, then you'll be a radical Christian. You'll influence the people around you just by doing that. He's being kind of, you know, uh, sarcastic, but... He's just saying all you have to do is live differently. Don't just blend in to the people around you. A creative minority makes a contribution in the world in which it lives through redemptive participation. So what are we saying? We're saying we've got to be faithful and we've got to be fruitful. We need to see our faith as playing the long game, chipping away with love at the people around us in the places of brokenness. We do this as a redemptive community who love each other, who live inside the story of redemption, who have a strong biblical ethical vision, who have counter-cultural practices, who live under the authority of God and who love people for God's glory. So let's Mary Creek Anglican be a creative minority and engage the culture around us, people who are loved by God. Let's pray.